Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out a community and join a movement group. Maybe it's supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let Him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. No, like, that's what it's about right there. And uh, I even started to tear up a little myself just thinking about that journey that we're all on. You know, we walk in here and we all have those moments, or most of us that would call ourselves Christ followers have those moments where we say, like, that is where I put my faith in Christ. And then the journey doesn't look as smooth as that one decision, right? We're up and down, we're up and down, we, we learn more, we grow. And uh, I'm just thankful for Ethan to bless us with his story uh, this morning. Give a round of applause for Ethan. Thank you for sharing that with us. If you have uh, your Bibles underneath your seats, turn to page 685, or if you have your device, you can open that up. If you are new here or you do not own a Bible, those Bibles underneath your seats, we're in 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If, if you do not have a Bible, that is our gift to you, um, and uh, we would love for you to take that home. So page 685, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we will be starting in verse 18, verse 18. All right, are you ready? All right, good, one person. All right, this is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know that it is the very power of God as the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of the world look foolish, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say that it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think that they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those things that are powerful. And God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. 
God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom himself. Christ made us right with God. He makes us pure and holy, and he freed us from our sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Continuing in chapter 2. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust, not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. There's a lot there. But in a lot of ways, it's super simple. As Don said this morning, we are in our series called Speaking of Jesus, where we're talking about what it looks like to share our faith. And there's really two ways that you can speak of someone. You could speak of someone because you have cursory knowledge or understanding of information about them, or you can speak of someone because you have intimate knowledge of who they are. And that's a perfect setup for today because if you are going to speak of Jesus, Paul says you need to know Jesus. And if you want to know Jesus, you only get to know Jesus really in the cross, through the cross. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't other things to be said about Jesus, but that the white hot center of who Jesus is, the emblem that is emblazoned on his heart is the wisdom of God and the power of God shown through the cross. And we're back in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning like we were last week. And the question to the Corinthian church that Paul is kind of rhetorically uh, asking throughout the letter is like, how do we take this thing that is the gospel, the good news about Jesus and intersect it with our lives in a world that is hostile to God, that wants nothing to do with him, that wants nothing to do with us? Like, how do we live in that world? How are we supposed to live in Corinth or Hilliard and worship Jesus? And the New Testament assumes something. It assumes that once you put your faith in Jesus, that you don't just run off to the hills and circle the wagons until this big bad world falls away, but that you actually engage the world with your faith. We do not escape We live in the world, but we are not of the world. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, as the Father sends me, I am sending you into the world. And where does Jesus get sent from? The comforts of heaven. He gets sent into this chaotic world. And we get to sit here on a Sunday in what is relatively a comfortable environment, but then we got to go live it throughout the rest of the week. And this is why Peter tells us in his letter that we are supposed to live such good lives among the pagans, that they would see our good works and that they would glorify God, that they would know Jesus. Jesus tells the church, you are a city set on a hill, the light of the world. You are salt to a decaying earth. You are light to darkness. You are my witnesses to an earth that does not believe in me. 
And in the context of our passage today, I want you to just come with me to a scene. We're in New York, and you're walking down the middle of Times Square. There's the hustle and bustle of everyday life. Some dude is walking down the street with his AirPods in, and he's got a cutoff shirt. He looks like he just got out of the Peloton studio. This guy is chiseled. He's got beads of sweat dropping down his face. And then you've got the hustle and bustle of all the people on their way to work wearing business suits and business casual, talking on their phones, checking email. And you can almost just feel the hot pink of the Victoria's Secret store as you walk by with 12-foot angels in the windows. And there goes a woman with a Dartmouth polo on and a guy with a bag that says Yale emblazoned on it. And as you look up, you see the stock market ticker. Tick, 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 tick. Just green and red, green and red, green and red. It's all about money. And as you gaze even further upward, you see this humongous poster and it's two guys with their fists up, their shirts off. It is the UFC heavyweight championship of the world and it's gonna be at Madison Square Garden. And as you continue to look around, you just realize that you are in the fishbowl of Manhattan. Businesses everywhere skyscrapers filled with luxury apartments and office buildings. And it's hard to not just help but absorb the message that just bleeds into your skin that life is about wealth, success, power, strength, intellect, sex appeal, the right schools, the right degrees, the right achievement. Life is about the winners and winning. And see, this is the wisdom of the world. And the reason that I start here is because I believe that this hypothetical person would have a lot in common with the same pressures and feelings of somebody sitting in the agora, the marketplace of Corinth, Corinth was as pagan as they come, the free-living Amsterdam of the ancient world. There was a big temple on the hill to the god Aphrodite, the god of love and beauty. And in that temple, there was a hundred, a thousand priestess prostitutes that served as worship to that god. And another temple to Apollo sat on Main Street. And instead of having priestess prostitutes, they had little boys. This made Corinth the sex tourism capital of the world. And ancient historians have noted that in their central marketplace or shopping mall, there were other temples to Dionysius, the god of orgy, Artemis, the god of fertility, Bacchus, the god of party and intoxication, Poseidon, the god of the sea, Zeus, the lord of the gods, might and strength. These were all at the heart of Corinth. And in the background of it all, if you were on a day where they were having gladiator games in the middle of the arena, you might hear the roar as one man completely obliterated another man in the ring for the pleasure and spectacle of the city, violence, sex, strength, achievement, power, the ultimate meritocracy. And the message was loud and clear. These temples and the gods behind them offered life in the most practical ways. Life is about sex and money and party and achievement and success and degrees and intellect Life is about the winners. This is Corinth. 
Now, we don't live in a country that's filled with temples anymore, but can I tell you, we all understand living in a world with these pressures because do not be deceived. We have lowercase g gods, and these gods are just as vocal and just as evident as they were then, and they are begging you every single day through their platforms to bow down to them, to worship them, to take in their wisdom. And they're just so a part of our everyday lives that we don't even probably realize half the time what they are doing to our psyche, the way we look at the world and even our understanding of God. And if we wanna speak of Jesus in a meaningful way in our world, we need to understand what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, that there is this black and white juxtaposition between the wisdom and the power of the world and the wisdom and the power of God shown through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that the only way, the only way that you can know God is by understanding the cross. And the cross is this reality. It's a historical event, but it also is a symbol that represents the way you live as a Christ follower. It's exactly what Ethan just said, picking up our cross, following Jesus daily, choosing the hard things. And this flips the world's values completely upside down, flips them inside out and displays just how hollow and shallow the world's values really are. And that's why Paul begins by saying that wisdom, worldly wisdom, does not get us to knowing God. God is known through the cross. In fact, Paul says this over and over and over again in this passage. Look at verse 18. The message of the cross is foolish, foolish to those that are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Verse 23, when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say that it's all nonsense. Verse two in chapter, or verse one in chapter two, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except for Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Verse five, I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Paul says, the cross, the cross the cross is the only way to know God. Now, when we think of the cross, we probably don't have a viscerally negative reaction to it. You know, the cross in a lot of ways, even in popular culture, even outside of Christianity has now become a symbol of of, of unity or of self-sacrifice, if anything. But I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of a first century Jew or Greek because they would not have seen it this way. Roman culture saw crucifixion as a part of death appropriate only for the worst of the worst, the lowest of the lows. In fact, Jewish people saw somebody that was hanging on a cross as cursed by God. And when I was in Israel doing some studies, we learned all about this in details. Romans perfected the art of torture in general, but crucifixion was their crown jewel. Crucifixion was Rome's way of putting up a living advertisement that said, if you go against us, this will happen to you. And so what they would do is when they would crucify criminals or slaves or insurrectionists, they would take them to some of the most public places, sometimes right on the highways, and they would hang them at eye level so you would have to look them in the eyes and they would be these stakes in the ground that say, you go against Rome, this will happen to you. Stay in line. 
And the way crucifixion would work is that they would hang you by your arms, splayed out with nails. And then they would put your feet on a tiny little post at the bottom of the cross. And you would hang down. And as you would hang down, it would suffocate your lungs. So the only way for you to stay alive was for you to push yourself up and gasp a breath of air. And then in exhaustion, you would collapse back down and then you'd push yourself up and then you'd collapse back down and you'd push yourself up. And eventually, when they just wanted you to die, all they had to do was take a bat to your legs and break them and you'd suffocate to death. This is how our Lord dies. Makes no sense. And before Jesus is crucified, the text tells us he isn't just crucified, he's scourged. And scourging was equally horrible. The victim would be stripped naked, chained to a pole, and they would take these leather straps filled with rocks and stones and old bones, and they would just pull it back, and then they would just work their way down a person's back until all you had was just feathers of skin and muscle and blood and tissue just falling off. And the text tells us that Jesus was flogged and scourged 40 times minus one. 40 was said to kill a man. Jesus was taken to the edge of the cliff of death and he was just hanging off the edge. So much so that when he gets to the Roman finisher, the crucifixion, he only lasts six hours. Most people lasted six days. They brought him to the end. This was so publicly humiliating and shameful that crucifixion was not even talked about, even though it was a super popular way for the Romans to kill people. In fact, cross in Latin, crux, was a four-letter word in that day. It was like saying the F word. And as disgusting as all of that is, as a representation of how sick humanity had gotten in their sin, that they would even dream up of doing this to a human being, it is nothing compared to the spiritual reality that was going on in the background. Because in the cross, there is this divine exchange going on. In fact, Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, explains this divine exchange. He says, he who had no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So whether you believe in Jesus or not, you can see the results of sin every day. Our world is absolutely groaning and in chaos. Nobody has, should have to convince you of that, especially after the last few years of living on this planet. And there has to be a penalty for that. There has to be punishment for that. God had to do something about it. And I know so many people, they, they like won't believe in God because they look at the world and the state that it is in and they just can't believe that a good God would allow that to happen because they ask the question like, well, what is God gonna do about it? But the answer is the cross because God already did do something about it and he put himself on a cross. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That sin 
requires separation from a holy and perfect God. And this is why Jesus, from the cross, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the father turns his face away from his son because that's what we deserved. And that is 10 times more excruciating for Jesus, if not a thousand times more excruciating for Jesus than physically being beaten and humiliated. The wages of sin is death and Jesus exchanges his death for our life. Praise be to God. And now you see, like, we're just so comfortable with this. Like, we gotta wake up sometimes. Like, I gotta wake up. I'm studying this week and I'm like, yeah, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Like, we talk about this every Sunday. We can get this gospel apathy. Let's wake up. No human intellect would ever come up with something like this. No human intellect could dream up God doing things like this, which is why this is the wisdom of God and it shames the wisdom of the world. In fact, John interprets this in his first chapter of his book and he says, he came into the very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and even they rejected him because who wants to follow a humiliated king? like that. So why did they reject Jesus? Because Jesus wasn't like Zeus. He wasn't like Poseidon. It wasn't about the biggest muscles, the most might, or enforcing your will into the world. He came into the world as a poor little baby, vulnerable, killable, and he was raised up. And on the cross, God says, I'm here for you. Look at me, I'm naked. I'm stripped of everything. I am humiliated and I am shamed. And shame is really actually an important part of this text because when sin enters the world, so does shame. And I've been doing actually a lot of reading recently about shame. If you wanna learn about shame and the way that it seeks to control our lives, I would recommend to everyone the book, The Soul of Shame by Dr. Kurt Thompson. And shame, he goes on to say, is what you could say is the physical and emotional response to sin. Adam and Eve sin against God, and then what do they do? They hide from God, and they cover themselves. And shame, he says, is this narrative where, you, where I see you see me, and you walk away. Does that make sense? So shame is this narrative in our head that like, if you really see me for who I am, and you see me seeing you, that you are still going to abandon me, that you are still going to walk away because it's not just that I have done something bad, that's guilt, but it is this feeling that I am bad to, to my core. That is shame. Shame wreaks havoc on our world because then our response as human beings is to cover. And how do we cover? We cover with the wisdom of the world. We cover with the degree, the letters in front of our name. We cover with the amount of money in our bank account. We cover with the size of our houses. We cover with the cars that we drive. We cover with the people that we marry and we put pressure on our spouse to be perfect so that they would look good to the world so that we look good. We cover with our education. We cover with our reputations. We cover with our children. We do that a lot. And when we cover with our children, we really screw them up because they have been put on their shoulders this this, this weight that only God can handle 
And so what we think will actually protect us only drives shame deeper and deeper and deeper into our lives because deep down inside, we know that we are filthy. But on the cross, Jesus does the thing that will actually heal us from our shame. He becomes vulnerable, weak. He is shamed. And if we want to be cast out of our shame, we have to see that for what it really means. Do you know what the cross really means? It means I see you see me. I see you in your filth. I see you in your sin. And I'm getting in the shame pit with you. And I'm staying I'm not leaving you. I love you. That's what the cross says. Only the cross can cast out shame in your life. God says, I see you. And I see you seeing me. And I see inside your soul. And I do not walk away. In fact, my justice is restorative, not punitive. Because I say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. That's God's justice. Paid on the cross through Christ. This is upside down living. There's a reason that 99% of his closest friends and followers aren't there when he's crucified. Because that was humiliating. That was shaming. Nobody could endure that. Evil would have never predicted that crucifixion would be our way back home to God, but it is. God climbs into our life and he says, you can hide all you want, but I'm chasing you down. I'm gonna find you and I'm gonna find you right in the midst of your sin. That's what the cross means. Would you recognize Jesus today? Would you recognize him if you walked in this room? Because I am convinced that so many people in the American church would be absolutely repulsed by him if he walked in. But, Paul says, to those that are being saved, they know he is the very power of God. And this is why Paul says, if you must boast, boast only in one thing, boast in the Lord. What do you boast in? Do you boast in God? Do you boast in your performance, your success, your achievements, your worldly status, which by the way, you're not invincible, you will die. Don't chase those things. Because when God came to earth, he lived an ordinary life as an ordinary carpenter. And then he died, unfortunately, what was an ordinary death for those that were the eggs, the, 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 the people on the outcasts, and that was crucifixion. And there's hope for us because as Paul kind of concludes this section, he says, this also is hope for you. Because remember, dear brothers and sisters, in verse 26, that few of you are wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things of the world, considers foolish, in order to shame those who think that they are wise. Verse 29, as a result, 
no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Paul says, you guys are living proof of this, that everybody that is in this room that has followed Christ is living proof of this. You know, God does call the wealthy and the powerful. That's why he says only few of you were wealthy and powerful and wise in the world's eyes, but many of you and most of you were not. That God doesn't differentiate between you and your worldly status or your non-worldly status, that God just chooses you for you. And as we evangelize on or as we, as we talk about the series in evangelism, I think like so many times we feel like we just have to make Jesus cool and relevant so that people would accept him. But Jesus would have been a loser compared to the world. In the eyes of the world. Like stop trying to make Jesus cool and re- relevant. He isn't. He's not cool and relevant. And you won't be either if you follow him. You're going to do things that are weird. You're going to live this upside down type of life where you win by losing like Jesus won by losing. Jesus isn't cool and relevant. He's holy. He's God and he's awesome. But as the world is concerned, he's not cool. He's not relevant. In fact, it's the opposite of the world and what they say. God uses hopeless and broken and sinful people to save other hopeless and broken and sinful people through the message of the cross. And see, the reason the wisdom of the world is so bad is because it speaks a lie about the actual human condition, which is even the richest, even the most powerful, even the most educated stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. And that's why Paul concludes by saying that it's all about Jesus. It's all about the cross. I concern myself with one thing he said. When I came to you, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan for I decided while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I did this so that you would not rest in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Can I just share with you in a moment of vulnerability how these words have ministered to me this week? Paul says, I came to you and I didn't use lofty words or persuasive speech, but I just spoke very plainly to you about the one thing that you need and that is Jesus. And I think in our, in, in, in our world, like, like there's this, this pressure in the world of TED Talks and podcasts and YouTube that like this has to be some show where you leave and you go, wow, Trig's so smart, he's so clever. He did a really good job. But if you walk out those doors and that is your thought versus Jesus Christ is amazing, I have failed you. I have failed you. Because it's not about me. It's not about some show. It's not about these stage decks. It's not about a smoke machine or having the best worship in town, the best building in town. What an abomination. It is about people filled with the power of the Holy Spirit who trust not in their own strength, not in their own achievements, but who trust in God, his reputation, 
his achievements and his victory for them. We have lost our way a little bit. And now when I say that, I just mean like the church as a whole in America. We've made it about the Sunday morning experience. It's about Jesus. It's about him. And so if the only way to know Jesus is through the cross, and you are a believer here this morning, hear this loud and clear. The way that you get to know him better is through the cross by opening up the word of God and just staring deeply into the reality of the cross and resurrection that Jesus defeated death for you. If you're not a believer, you're not gonna get to know God by looking deep within your heart. You're not gonna know God by looking up to the cosmos. You're not gonna know God by reading Girl, Wash Your Face. That's an uncomfortable amount of laughter. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You guys have... I was like, what's the one book they've all read? But you ain't gonna know God that way. You're not. You're not gonna know God by reading the latest and greatest book that has the human wisdom in the world. You're gonna know God by opening this up, gazing at the heart of God for you through Jesus Christ. That is how you will know God. And we're gonna finish here because I don't wanna leave one stone unturned. When you ask the question, Who killed Jesus? No one did. No one killed Jesus. You know what Jesus says? I willingly gave my life up. I give my life up for you. God did that for you. Look into the throbbing, beating heart of God, his love for you, his pursuit of you, that our God would come to this world and say, I willingly lay my life down as the punishment for your sin. And then I go to the grave, but I don't stay there. I resurrect to new life so that you know there is life after this life. There is life after this death. And you can have that today. And so maybe you need to recommit your life to Christ. You need to, you need to say, I've been walking in sin and I don't wanna walk in that anymore. Maybe this is the first day that you are gonna give your life into the hands of the wonderful creator that loved you, created you, and came after you on the cross. You can go back to our prayer team during worship or after service that would love to pray for you. But let me pray for us now. Father in heaven, as we gaze into the face of you hanging on that cross, we remember just how broken we are, but we also want to remember just how loved we are, that you look deep into our souls. You see us for who we are. You, you see us looking at you. You look right at us and you, you stay, Lord. You, you do not abandon us. You do not look the other way, but you look right at us and you say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And so I pray that this would not be a message of condemnation, but of encouragement that you would do that for us, Lord, that you are, you are shamed for us, that you are killed for us, and that you gave your life for us so that we could have new life in you, Lord. And so as we go and we speak that into the world, I pray that we are not thrown off by the fact that people won't always understand it, that they won't always like it because That message isn't relevant to the world, but it is extremely relevant for everybody in this room that calls on the name of Jesus. And it's relevant for all those that need to know that message. 
And so, Lord, we pray that that message would go out and would go out fast and it would go out just by the power of your spirit from, from every individual in this room, Lord, and that we would share it like wildfire and that people would be saved because of it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encourages you to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.